You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and I am back here at the Cabin in the Woods, located for the moment somewhere in the wilds of West Cork. This episode is our 1950s flying saucer movie mashup. We're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about the day of the Earth stood still and we're going to be talking about the thing from another world both from 1951 and back at the cabin and very welcome indeed to talk with me about these movies is Dr. Edward Guimont. Uh, Very pleased to have him back in. Now what do I want to talk about? It is spring as I'm recording this. Uh, I think it's probably the first day I voluntarily sat outside (laughs) wearing shorts and uh, it, it was actually pleasant to be outside, so that's a good good sign. We're starting to see uh, flowers coming out in the woods surrounding the cabin as well, so that's good. I only have a few small things to talk about before we get to this episode because it was a fairly long one. Um, I'm going to mention I was interviewed recently for an article about UFOs and the Cold War and the beginning of the Flying Saucer phenomenon for the All About History magazine, and just picked up pick one up, and I think the article looks really great. That was. A lot of fun to do and and rather exciting. The other um, main source for this was Dr. David Clark, whose work I really, really like. I have several of his books here in the cabin, so a little, little bit surreal, actually, to, to um, be on the on the list with someone like him. So that, that was cool. Um, also, uh, we had a little bit of feedback about the last episode about uh, Percy Fawcett and the Lost City of Z. So listener Mr. Morrison said that, he said, I watched the Lost City of, of Z last night so I'd be ready for the podcast, and something about it rubbed me the wrong way. I guess my big problem with the movie is that it makes a lot of hay about Fawcett being slightly less racist than his contemporaries, but all the South American natives in the movie are basically just props on his journey, not full characters in their own right. And yeah, this, this occurred to me too, actually, upon my recent rewatch, and I guess all I can say is it it really is part and parcel of that genre of sort of adventure fiction where um, generally Europeans go somewhere exotic and you know the place they go to and the people they meet really just kind of serve as props for them to you know find their own self or find their own truth and it's just odd to see it in such a recent film it is such a really old trope I do think that uh, storytellers are getting better at uh, treating this nowadays but yeah still it's still very evident in that film Hardly any uh, local people in South America uh, characters in the film have almost anything to say. So all of their their truth, you know, about this whether or not this lost city is true, really, it don't, it doesn't exist for them. It exists for him. It's it's all about what he thinks of it and what this means for him. And I, you know, I, I think uh, Campbellian storytelling has a lot to answer for as well. I think we we have this kind of standard way of telling stories now where whatever happens the only point of it is like what it means for you as the protagonist and not necessarily for anybody else so good observation it did occur to me when I was watching the film but I didn't mention it on the show just because I suppose I read so much fiction that's like this anyway and I kind of have to have it pointed out to me occasionally so all I'm going to say is for this interview I had just come off maybe two or three days of doing a lot of travel for work Um, And it was over Patrick's weekend when it felt like everybody else in the country was off for four days having a good time. And I was fairly busy doing a lot of travel. Um, As I was talking to Eddie here, I had just gotten back from uh, a long drive and I was, you know, just pleased to kick back and talk about flying saucers. 
and uh, take in a couple of high percentage brews as I remember. So uh, I was really enjoying myself on this one. I think, I think it'll show. So hopefully you enjoy it as well. Let us know. As always, reach out on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. Been a little bit more um, active there recently, as often is the case when I'm actually putting out episodes. And over on Instagram, I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude for now at least. All right, so here we go, folks. Uh, Flying Saucers, two movies from 1951. Hope you enjoy this one. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Cool. Um, Eddie, um, serial offender on the show. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> offender. Uh, just in case anyone um, hasn't checked out our previous episodes, would you like to introduce yourself and your work? Sure. Yeah. So I'm officially Dr. Edward Guimont, uh, assistant professor of world history at Bristol Community College in Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, and my dissertation work was on a lot of uh, you know, pseudo history stuff with Great Zimbabwe, but have my work has gone many places, including across the plane of the flat earth, you know, inside the hollow earth, uh, work on Mokele Mabembe, mammoths, uh, all the interesting uh, out there stuff of essentially uh, looking at how colonialism kind of ties in with a lot of uh, fringe ideas that in some cases are still prevalent today, in some cases even more prevalent today. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's funny when you read books from kind of, uh, let's say, 10, 15 years ago when they sometimes talk about this stuff. Oh, and, and now all that's done done with. Um, yeah. <laughs> anything prior to kind of 2015-ish, sometimes you get you get that attitude. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah, and I was talking about this the other day too, and it's you now, now all of a sudden it's, you know, big wave of uh, uh, like spiritual and kind of more pair- it sounds strange to say more paranormal stuff, but I feel like, you know, the stuff I was reading when I was a kid, you know, it was UFOs, it was uh, cryptids that were much more, uh, you know, the flesh and blood, nuts and bolts approach than it is today, which I guess, again, you know, if you know history, it's been like that in the past too, but it is interesting to see that, you know, we are in such a big field where so much of the paranormal stuff has this, uh, magical uh you know spiritual uh non-materialist crossover yeah i think stuff comes in waves i think the the, the yeah. more nuts and bolts and then the more esoteric th things seem to come come in waves tell us a little bit about i know you've been doing some some traveling um for for writing and research and you've been doing so you've been having some adventures in providence. i have i want to hear about this. providence and the air so for those who aren't aware of fall river where i am it's about a 20 minute drive outside of Providence, the capital of the state of Rhode Island. Providence, also the home of the author H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, some listeners may be aware I'm finishing up co writing a book on Lovecraft, astronomy, and uh, uh, kind of the pulp space opera of his time. So recently I was able to go uh, be given a tour of the Ladd Observatory, the uh, Brown University Observatory in Providence where Lovecraft knew some of the astronomers as a kid. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna be going into the John Hay Library at Brown to look through some of 
uh, both the old lab uh, archives as well as some of Lovecraft's personal papers, uh, well, some of which are not yet digitized. So I'm actually, you know, most of his stuff is available online digitally, but some of these are not. So be able to dig through you know, some of the old Lovecraft stuff as research for the book. Uh, Fall River, some may also be aware of uh, this location as uh, if you really know about kind of uh, the claims of early contact. Uh, this is the home of the skeleton in armor that was discovered in 1832. So I quite often go just in my morning run past the location where that was found. It's a plaque on the wall of the building. You just see that as you go by. You know, we're uh, just south of Dighton Rock, where there's a you know, series of mysterious, uh, supposedly mysterious carvings. Uh, uh, interesting, we can say, I guess. And actually, uh, uh, in a couple of days, I should be going up there with uh, another local uh, friend of the show, Cameron McCormack, to look around there. Uh, and yeah, I've been down to the Newport Tower in Newport, Rhode Island, and <laughs> been given a tour of the Newport Tower Museum by uh, the uh, the very kind uh, uh, proprietor of the museum who believes that the tower was built by John Dee in the 16th century. So a kind of an alternative view of the typical alternative view of the Newport Tower. Yeah, that's not even the usual, like, exactly. Wow. <laughs> uh, do you, did you go to Lovecraft's grave? Did I see I, I've been to Lovecraft's grave. Yeah, it's, uh, we're recording this uh, on it March 19th. So the anniversary of his death was March 15th. So usually I've in the past, I've tried to head up to Providence. Uh, it was easier when I was in Connecticut uh, as opposed to New York. But, you know, now that I'm just 20 minutes away, of course, I'm going to go in and you know see him at the anniversary of uh, his death. So went there. It's actually surprisingly, there was a lot of people out for a walk in the cemetery. I didn't see anyone else at the grave, uh, which sometimes you do before, but plenty of little uh, mementos and uh, uh, devotional offerings left to the old gentleman. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Cool. Yeah, I, I guess I was going to say, you know, is he big enough that, is he enough of a celebrity that you'll see people going there? But he, I mean, he really is. He's come, like when I was a kid, I came across his name in a Ray Bradbury story. I distinctly mm, remember yep. this because it's such an odd name and I had no context for it. And it's funny, yeah, because I think you know in the Martian Chronicles he mentions Lovecraft, and that that may have been the first time I saw Lovecraft. I mean, just you know reading that as a kid and you no, know, not really having any idea. And it's not a big name; he just name drops it. But yeah, I mean that probably was. Uh, uh, and yeah, I mean like last time I've been to Lovecraft's grave uh, in the fall. There was a couple there from, I think they were up from Georgia. So yeah, it's a, it's a big draw for <laughs> people just, you know, come into the area. Right. I think before we get into the main stuff today, we, we are talking about uh, 1950s flying saucer movies. We should talk about our beverage because I don't, I don't often ask uh, guests to do it, but um, it's, it's Patrick's <laughs> weekend here and I've actually been working all weekend. I have to travel for work. Everybody else has a whole bunch of days off because I don't know if I feel like about 10 bank holidays have fallen together or something uh, so I've, I've been traveling and working and doing stuff and i'm just back i'm just relaxing and uh, yeah I'll, I'll tell you what i'm drinking in a moment but why don't you go first sure i am drinking troy city brewery right here in fall river the troy german pilsner 5.2 abv and it's pretty good and i was so there's a couple of breweries in providence that occasionally will have lovecraft themed beers i was hoping to pick one up but None of them had any of the Lovecraft stuff out now, but I figured 
Troy City Brewery, the Troy Beer. We have ancient civilization. So that's that's at least we got some kind of connection there as well. Uh, I'll say also for the listeners, you're wearing a kind of orangish shirt today. So for Patrick's, I don't know, that's... But I will say by complete coincidence, I am wearing a green shirt. So we've at least we've we've blended it together there. So I nearly got I was in the shop today. There was a beer called Mythos, which made me think of Lovecraft, but it was it's just it's nothing to do with him. It was a Greek lager and mm. it didn't look very good. I would only have been buying it for the gimmick name. So instead, I've got Porterhouse Brew. Ooh. Porterhouse is a Dublin company and a bar you can go to. There used to be one in Cork years ago. Um, and they had a Tom Crean brew. Tom Crean was an <laughs> Irish uh, Antarctic explorer. Um, this is called Quadruple X Full On Stout. And <laughs> on the side, it says Quadruple X refers to the alcohol level and the depth of flavor. But I, I, I didn't, I can't see where the percent. Oh, it's 5%. All right, that's okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was going to be something like double digits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, those days are gone. They've brought in some new um, laws here actually about... Uh, they have shops have to charge a certain amount per unit of alcohol. Oh, some of the like crazy high strength European brews that you used to find for mega cheap. Those have all a lot of them have, uh, have gone. <laughs> right. We need to talk about flying saucer movies. We are. Yes. <laughs> we're going we're to compare and contrast as uh, as examiners like to say. We're going to compare and contrast two films that came out. Um, or fairly early on in the in the in the early days of flying saucer lore, 1951, we are of course talking about the the Earth stood still and the thing from another world. I'm interested. I de we definitely want to talk about like you know what, what we like about them and what's good about them and how we how we feel about them. But I definitely want to talk about what ways do they reflect the way flying saucer culture was at the time and what ways they maybe influence it afterwards that's what i definitely yeah. <laughs> do you have a history with these with these movies i did so i as a kid this probably says something about me as a kid i loved the day the earth stood like when i was like 10 years old you know just obsessively taking it out from the library it was the day the earth stood still 2001 a space odyssey uh and the 1950s versions of uh, The War of the Worlds and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Those are like the four movies I would just like, probably you know, even more than like Star Wars or so. I love, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen The Day the Earth Stood Still for a long time. I mean, maybe like 15, 20 years, but definitely still held up. A thing from another world, uh, I've seen that once before about 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm less, I was less familiar, I mean, was familiar with the general outline. I've read you know, Who Goes There, loved the John Carpenter movie, of course. I mean, who'd, well, I would say, of course, although actually apparently it was not really well liked when it first came out. But uh, so much more familiar with uh, Day the Earth Stood Still than Thing from Another World. Yeah, I, I, it was very difficult for me to get access to stuff like this uh, in, in the mid-90s even. You know, you just... The, the whole like science fiction thing has blossomed a lot since and it you know back then that was a it felt like an incredibly niche thing to be interested in never mind like really old stuff from the 50s and <laughs> you know it wasn't shown on tv and you couldn't go into a place and just rent it and it just so i would read about these books because i had books about the history of science fiction i had books about the history of ufo culture and stuff and they would mention these so i always thought of them as classics um 
probably saw them first when I was about 18. And I started discovering where the where the really good um, VHS. I definitely had a day of the year stuff still on VHS from a place that, you know, specialized in sort of cult stuff. You know, when I started getting into old Sam, like Sam Raimi movies and, mm. you know, it's that sort of thing. So <laughs> I was definitely about 18. And I, I didn't see the thing from another world until maybe just a couple of years ago. And I was I was knocked out by some of the on the nose UFO stuff like that's it's just incredible to me that this stuff these films are being written as these things are still happening and they're still fresh they're still you know the lore is being created almost through them around them it I mean yeah the lore being created through I think that's a great way to say it especially because I mean the thing that really struck me in like rewatching like the last time I watched Day of the Earth stood still again you know this was decades ago and you know before I really knew a lot about the history of you know flying saucers as a phenomenon beyond just kind of the more basic stuff but I mean watching this now you know the opening scenes with the uh, uh, flying saucer going over Washington and now of course I was thinking okay so this obviously is a reference to you know the 1952 uh, you know flying saucer panic over Washington this is before then so I you got to wonder you know if this movie really helped, you know, inspire that you know, very famous uh, 1952 uh, flying saucer over Washington, which probably was like the for the time it was probably the biggest, you know, wave of flying saucer sightings, definitely at least since 1947 in the initial wave, and you know, so much of that is really just coming out, you know, very similar to stuff shown in this movie. So I think we'll we'll make this spoiler filled and yeah. um, <laughs> yes because we we I want to talk about these in a bit of depth anyway and I we'll, we'll start with the day the earth stood still and I'll just say um absolutely worth I think worth watching and therefore if you haven't seen it um and this is going to be spoilerific you know just take a little bit of care because this <laughs> to me this film really holds up I think it's a legitimate classic I think there's something timeless about it and I think a fairly wide range of people will enjoy this you know if you haven't seen it if you are a ufo person but not a movie person or if you're or vice versa for whatever reason you haven't you haven't checked this out and it is really worth your time going into it yeah i agree i mean i'll say i think both of these movies are worth watching if you're interested in history of science fiction if you're interested in history of ufos definitely i mean both of these worth watching uh, i don't know about you i'll say i think day the earth stood still holds up just as a movie on its own more, you know, if you don't like science fiction, you don't like UFOs, I think you'll still enjoy Day of the Earth Stood Still. Mm -hmm. Maybe not thing from another world as much. Yeah, uh, it's a little more, a little more pedestrian in, in its production, even though there are still a lot of interesting things in it, but Day of the Earth Stood Still is, uh, there's something trans, trans, transcendent about it. It feels, yeah, I think somebody not interested in flying saucers would enjoy this. I, I think there's a lot, it's, it's dealing with, a lot of themes which are still important and mm. man, it's so of its time it's such a cold war film and, and yet there's something timeless about it the, the, the writing is tremendous and um, the cinematography is tremendous i get a real vibe from from this occasionally of kind of film noir there's those you know those contrasts in black and white there's the use of shadows you know I, I'm, I'm not sure whether anybody involved in this you know wasn't was people who came from europe originally which a lot of people in Hollywood were, who, people who got out of Germany and other countries during the rise of the Third Reich. And then, you know, we're, we're make, doing cinematography for a lot of the 1940s classic film noirs, bringing some of that German 
sort of, I don't know if expressionism is the right word, but bringing some of that to it. This film has a little bit of that, you know, the scene where they're going up the stairs. And mm-hmm. the, yeah, mm, that's like kind of Fritz it, it is Some of the shots with like uh, the robot Gort, and, you know, it's like, especially there's the stationary Gort, which I think is very striking. And then the mobile Gort when it's the guy in the suit, which is a bit less, mm. but I mean, still, but just like, there's something about the design of Gort and just how, especially the stationary one is framed so well. And I think, yeah, there's some real striking shots there when uh, uh, Claw 2, you know, he first, when he lets himself into the, you know, the boarding house and he's in shadow and everyone's shocked. Yeah, that's a real striking you know, use of lighting in that scene too. But I think, you know, speaking, so speaking of, you know, people who made it, so I looked it up. Uh, so this screenplay is by, Edmund North, which I think seems to be his only science fiction movie. Uh, I was surprised that he uh, uh, also did the screenplay to sync the Bismarck and Patton, so some World War II uh, classics there. Uh, also, you know, he uh, fronted the screenplay for uh, Dalton Trumbo's script to the 1958 movie Cowboy, so seems to be kind of a general left-wing uh, person. But uh, the basis of this was the 1940 short story Farewell to the Master by Harry Bates, who I actually didn't know this until quite recently. Uh, Harry Bates is the first editor of what becomes Astounding Science Fiction. So he's editor from 1930 to 33. Then Orlin Tremaine is editor from 1933 to 37. And then uh, John Campbell, who writes Who Goes There, takes over. So both of these movies are actually based on stories written by the editors of a uh, uh, astounding science fiction, which I think also you know shows the importance of uh, kind of the pulp science fiction uh, magazines of that era. Now I, I'm not sure where I'm pulling this from. Uh, it's not in any of my sources in front of me, but I, I have a memory that the that short story, Farewell to the Master, is it the case that they discover at the end spoilers, but they discover at the end <laughs> that the robot who is presumed to be the subordinate is in fact the mat. Does that ring a bell? Am I making yes? This- yeah. So I. <laughs> I'll say I have not read Farewell to the Master, but I know that's the twist, but I was actually, there's a documentary from 1995 called Making the Earth Stand Still. So it was on the copy of the DVD I was watching. And they, uh, one of the people they interview is the producer, Julian Blaustein. So he says, he talks about the genesis of the movie. And he says he came up with kind of like the general basic gist of, you know, the broad outline of what would become Day the Earth Stood Still. And then kind of was like reading through hundreds of stories to just kind of find one that he could kind of like retroactively fit into, uh, uh, you know, the story he wanted to tell. And he said that, oh yeah, so he said uh, he read Farewell to the Master, said he didn't think it was that good, but he was interested in two things. Uh, The first is the scene where Klaatu like offers the gift at the start and then gets shot. And then he says the idea that peace is achieved through the other planets agreeing to give up you know, part of their sovereignty to the robots uh, to keep the peace. So the fact that these are the two elements from the original story that actually kind of uh, uh, spoke to him and kind of justified retroactively fitting this into uh, the story he wanted to tell. Huh. Interesting. I have, um, I have a note about Edmund H. North. Now, this is from... Silver Screen Saucers by Robbie Graham. It's an interesting book. There's there's some, a lot of stuff in here I didn't know. And um, some of it is kind of him talking to his kind of UFO community buddies and them telling him, you know, stuff that they think is going on. So there's a little bit of myth making going on as well. But he says that um, 
he's trying to kind of make the case that the like the CIA had involvement in Hollywood, you know, in, in these days. Mm-hmm. And there's some evidence of that. He he concedes that we don't have evidence that they were influencing science fiction or flying saucer movies, but he says, well, they, they could have. And he points out that Edward North had been a major in the Army Signal Corps uh, before before being in Hollywood, and he was in charge of training and educational documentaries. And um, <laughs> uh, some of the 20th Century Fox production chief, uh, Daryl Zanuck, who kind of got the film Got the, got the film made. He had been an Army Signal Corps documentary unit guy as well. So they were both involved in making sort of army propaganda. Of, or maybe that's, I don't know if that's too strong a word, but they were making, you know, military yeah. themed uh, documentary type stuff. And the director, Robert Wise, in the documentary about the making of the movie, he talks about how, you know, trying to shoot this as kind of like a documentary style format also. So I mean, that fits in also. It's funny too, because when I was watching this, I remember that, uh, I remember like, so I remember hearing a story years ago that like that there was a, a story about a rumor that some like conspiracy theorists thought that actual like UFO footage had been spliced into Day the Earth Stood Still. But I tried, I couldn't find, so I don't know if I just made that up or what, but I've I, heard, I had the strange memory of that being a rumor about I've this. heard a similar thing about, I think the, the, the film, the 1950 film, The Flying Saucer, I okay maybe that's something yeah. I'll, I'll double check this in the edit but um i think a similar story was told about that film as well editing key in here yes indeed it was the flying saucer from 1950 the director michael conrad told the ohio journal herald in 1949 that he had actual legitimate footage of a real flying saucer the air force thought enough of this to do a two-month investigation into him and his film went so far as to actually attend the screening when it premiered uh, in order to find out that, of course, he was uh, talking absolute nonsense. Which I, I presume was the first Hollywood film which had flying saucers in it. Although I think in that film, it turns out that it's a, it's a US built secret project <laughs> and the Russians are trying to get their hands on it. So I, I think Day the Earth Stood Still is like, is that the first flying, like alien flying saucer film? I think it must be, yeah. I, like I'm trying to think of what would have, unless there was some real cheap, like, like yeah. schlock thing but i mean i think even by the late four a probably would have been a bit expensive to do something like that i'm just going to read a quick um synopsis just from wikipedia so folks know what's going on so they it says that set in the cold war during the early stages of the nuclear arms race the film storyline involves a humanoid alien visitor so that's that's Klaatu. it's um, michael rennie isn't it yeah mm-hmm. um a humanoid alien visitor who comes to Earth accompanied by a powerful robot, that's Gort, to deliver an important message that will affect the entire human race. So that's that's the, the plot all wrapped up. Robert Wise, incidentally, um, again from Silver Screen Saucers. I wonder if you've ever heard this anywhere else because I haven't. Um, the writer says that, so he's friends with a guy called Paul Davids who directed the 1994 TV movie Roswell. Yes, yeah, Paul Paul Davids is interesting because you know for me like someone who was really into Star Wars books uh you know in the 90s uh, Paul Davids wrote a bunch of uh, like kids Star Wars books in oh, the 90s. Did he write those ones that every that got retconned out of existence because Well, he wrote but 
he wrote books about like some of the ideas in the books then got reused in the sequel trilogy. Like the idea that like Emperor Palpatine had like a secret grandkid that Luke then trains as something. Yes. Yeah. It's like the glove of Darth Vader with like the three headed. There's yeah, three ideas. The, the famous line of like, my father had many powers of the dark side, but without three eyes, he could never achieve perfection. But <laughs> there was something about like a secret cabal of like Sith priests who have a yeah <laughs> yeah oh god that's yeah i remember yeah because i i have a a, a, sh a shameful history with star wars expanded <laughs> universe stuff yeah. well and then there's an interesting thing in that like the head of those like secret sith magicians is named jedgar as in j edgar so it's even then he's tying in some of his like yeah. conspiracy ufo stuff into that wow. So see what you make of this, right? So Paul Davis makes the 1994 TV movie Roswell, which has Agent Dale Cooper in it, and is a pretty, mm -hmm. it's a pretty straight retelling of the Roswell myth, kind of as we know it today. And, um, you know, this is 1994, this is, uh, you know, Roswell is kind of coming back into the public consciousness after being not a thing for many decades, you know, until, until the 80s yeah. anyway. And... According to David, so this is David's telling Graham, right? He met Robert Wise uh, in Beverly Hills, and Robert Wise said he was a firm believer in ET visitation. Um, quote, he told me he absolutely did believe that the saucers were real and that some of them were extraterrestrial. He believed it not because he had seen one, but because of all the information that had come to him while he was making the day the Earth stood still. Now, <laughs> I've not been able to cross-reference this with any other Robert Wise interviews, um, and so it could be just, I'm just passing on gossip effectlessly here, yeah. but I thought it was I, fun. My sense is Paul David's is a bit of a, a gossip from some of the other stuff I've read, but I mean, maybe like I was reading uh, the interview or the, seeing the interview with uh, the producer, uh, Julian Blaustein, and he was talking, he was like, yeah, we based the design on Klaatu's uh, ship from like all the known you know facts on flying sauce. I think he said like, we based on like the known you know, facts on flying saucers and levitation technology. They kind of move on, but I was just like really curious, you know, what are the known facts on levitation technology <laughs> that you know he's referenced? <laughs> one of my favorite things about the day of the earth stone still is it is a really gorgeous iteration of the, you know, the your classic 1940s, 50s flying saucer. It's, I mean, they this must have been the first time people saw on screen what all those newspaper reports were saying, you know, in those days. And it's it's a lovely, it's a very well done special effect. I think it's a lovely design. I think there's something kind of pure and um, ethereal about it. And, and we've got the use. I wonder, is this the first use of theremin to represent aliens of flying saucers? It must be. Yeah, I noticed that also. Bernard Herman. Um, yep. Because <laughs> I saw, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, that sound effect was used as a joke in The Simpsons for um, Carl and Co or, what, Kang and Kodos. Or in, in, you know, in Mars Attacks, it's used very yeah. prominently. So those are my associations of it. But I'm, I'm watching this and wondering, is this the first time th that it association be, yeah. was, was, was made? I wonder. I haven't I haven't seen the 1950 film Flying Saucer, so I wonder whether any. It's not supposed to be very good. Yeah. <laughs> um. So there's some stuff that happens during the opening scenes uh, that are very effective when the flying saucers is coming towards Earth and landing, and we get all these people looking at radar. You get radar sightings, which was already a bit of a trope in, in UFO mm. culture by this point. And somebody says that the craft is doing like 4,000 miles per hour, which 
made me think of Kenneth Arnold trying to estimate the speed of the. <laughs> yep. From, what was he? He was looking out his window and trying to see how they moved. Yeah, the- looking out his yeah, but yeah, it's just as window like you know in the distance, you know, trying to compare it to Mount Rain. Yes, yeah, just very uh, <laughs> you know from. From yeah, it's a there's a lot of guesstimation with Kenneth your pants calculations. And somebody, yeah. one of the like TV announcers says, "This is not another flying saucer scare." Which I, I love that it just shows you like this stuff was current, you know. Yep. These, yeah. These 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 scares were happening. The the people were reading about them in the papers. They were they were big news. They were the hot new thing. Uh, it's one of the things I find very exciting about this film. <laughs> it's like the very first. Sh- I mean, you have like uh, it kind of like replicates like the ship approaching earth kind of from the point of view, you know, it's this, you know, pre space age concept of what the earth would have looked like, you know, from space. And I think, you know, I don't know if this is, was it a, there's some like after world war two and white sands and they're putting like a, a WAC corporal rocket on top of a captured V2 and launching. So they had some like very early, like suborbital photographs of the earth from space, but I don't know if that would have been before this or, but anyway, you have you know very early depictions of the Earth from space, and also you know the first bit of dialogue in that radar scene. Uh, it's British, you know, officers in Hong Kong, you know, saying, "Oh, this must be a buzz bomb." So right from the start, you have Cold War and World War Two, you know, really being brought into this very directly. Uh, uh, and yeah, <laughs> the idea, you know, this is not another flying saucer scare that really struck me too. Uh, but also struck me that all of these, you know, like radio reports uh it made me wonder if you know this was kind of influenced by the 1938 war of the world scare with some of like the broadcasting uh elements just seemed like you know especially you know something like do not panic don't worry but i also like the flying saucer is approaching you know the national mall and just it seemed very much kind of like a little uh call back to the orson wells narration so the the saucer then lands um next to the white house on a kind of a, is it it's like a baseball diamond is it yeah it's <laughs> yep is is this the origin of the phrase you know when aliens land on the white house lawn do you think this is where it comes that, that must yeah i mean it's it <laughs> seems likely <laughs> it's not literally the white house lawn but like if you're not paying too much attention it looks like it might be it lands on a field and you can see the white house in the background mm-hmm. and, uh, and immediately we get all this, yeah, all these Cold War tensions and uh, we have civilians, you know, dis- at breakfast discussing, you know, what this might mean. And somebody says, oh, I don't think they're from outer space. And, you know, you know who I mean. <laughs> There's a lot of this kind of, uh, you know, don't say it out loud. But that's yeah. how, it, I mean, that's how it was in, in 1947 when the very first sightings were being reported. You know, one of the earliest ideas was people presuming, was it Russian? Was it? Or was it a secret U.S. project or some such? Yeah, and all the like uh, the contactees and the UFO groups. You know, there's the you know, sense. You know, they had the International Flying Saucer uh, you know, Study Group or whatever it was called that Albert Bender ran. And you know, he's investigated by the FBI. You know, anything with the word international in the title oh, means communist. And, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a. It's just funny. It's just like so. You know, right from the start, there's this fear, like by the FBI, that you know, people, you know. Oh, they're preaching, you know, like peace and, you know, uh, unity that must be communist. Oh, they're working internationally. That must be Soviet agents. So, you know, it does reflect that there is this, you know, UFOs are implicitly communist. (laughs) So this film does definitely have a message of of peace. And, you know, our main 
extraterrestrial character, Klaatu, he comes with a message of peace. He basically says that we need to stop our petty fighting and our petty differences and grow up, especially now that we have the nuclear bomb um, and that we will only be allowed into this kind of intergalactic you know, federation, if you want to use that word, um, if we kind of grow up and as a, as a species and get our act together. So I guess I'm wondering, was there anybody on this film who got blacklisted who was on Senator Joe's blacklist? Yeah, not not from what I could tell. I mean, you do have uh, Edmund North working with Dalton Trumbo. So there's at least some association there. But yeah, I mean, from what I can tell, at least, I mean, you know, Robert Wise, obviously, he went on to have like, an incredibly prolific career. I mean, I think the last thing he did was in the 2000s, which is very surprising to me. But yeah, he's just like a main Hollywood uh, uh, standard. Uh, who else, you know, wrote, he directed a lot of other movies that, you know, as a kid, I really just never really put that together. Uh, uh, you know, Run Silent, Run Deep, The Andromeda Strain, uh, yeah. of course, Star Trek, The Motion Picture. Uh, yeah. Fans call it the motionless picture. <laughs> yes. It's very slow. I like it, though. I, I mean, I, I think if you accept it as a, it's more like a 2001 Space Odyssey type. It's, it's more like your kind of 60s, 70s, slow burn kind of, yeah. rather than a... I mean, it is funny that it was like, you know, it's, the movie comes out as a response to Star Wars. Mm. And I mean, yes, and it's still just too, that's very, I think it was common with a lot of like the Star Wars, like a, uh, it was like Disney's The Black Hole, you know, that yes. comes out much like, you know, as a response to Star Wars. It's also kind of like a 2001 type yes. movie. But I mean, yeah, I rewatched uh, the motion picture not too long. It's, it's it holds up. I, I really enjoyed I like it. And that. it's, I, I, think I think there is some kind of parallels to, uh, uh, the day the earth stood still, especially with V'ger, you know, the, the probe that's returning to find its creator. And I think there's some kind of, you know, can see some parallels there to uh, day the earth stood still. I think it's like, this is common idea that, you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg changed film forever in the seventies and they kind of invent the blockbuster. And it's almost as if the other studios learned the wrong lesson for, for a long time. They were just like, huh, people want space movies. And they they, yep. they commission all these space movies, but they're these kind of slow, thoughtful, ponderous <laughs> space movies. Instead of realizing, no, no, Star Wars is popular because it's like fast and it's silly and it's based on you know these old serials that are pretty yep. fast and silly. <laughs> and it takes them a long time to to pick up. I think. <laughs> yep. Well, and I mean, we should also point out that uh, Robert Wise also directed, you know, The Sound of Music and West Side Story. Uh, which was just remade by Spielberg. And I found at least one interview where Spielberg talks about how he was friends with Robert Wise. And it's only because they were friends that he felt like he could redo West Side Story. Uh, so, you know, I think also, you know, in that context, you know, Spielberg definitely saw the day the earth stood still. You can kind of see some echoes of that in Close Encounters for sure as well. So I want to talk about um, Klaatu's message of peace in, in the context of sort of like, I, I suppose new age is the wrong phrase. It's a little bit early, but you know, idea, you know, I, I, groups like this did exist and thinking like this gurus did exist who were, you know, promoting sort of proto peace and love ideas. And, you know, around this time you have the contactee movement happening as well. And in, in, in the person of somebody like George Adamski who literally in one person, he bridges the gap between kind of pre flying saucer 
you know, peace and love guru, and then the actual post flying saucer contactee because he had what was his group called? The Order of Tibet, Royal Order of Tibet. Right. He, yeah. Yep. Kind of a, so he just kind of repackaged a lot of the ideas after flying saucers came along and said, you know, I can I can sell this in a slightly different way now. I, I'm interpreting yeah. <laughs> him in the most cynical way. Um, for all I know, he was a true believer. I don't know, but um, yeah, you, maybe <laughs> this film is important in that context. Yeah, at that, I mean, at, I think you can really see a lot of like the major like ideas of you know there is that kind of like '50s particular view of like UFOs as you know saviors or you know like proselytizers of galactic peace, which is funny because you know in after the earth stood still so many of the flying saucer movies are about you know like they're here to destroy us and all this but if you look at the actual like, ufo culture i think it is much more of the hopeful positive uh uh you know peace loving message and then by the 60s it kind of starts to i mean starts to be maybe a bit less maybe like a bit more apolitical and then you get the more sinister aliens you know by the end of the 70s early 80s but you know so i think you, this definitely is a reflection of UFO culture as it is really emerging. And as you know, the, the so-called ET hypothesis is kind of becoming solidified as, you know, if they're not Soviets, they're not, you know, secret German weapons or any of this, they're, you know, Martians or Venusians. And you can see this getting uh, combined into that. Uh, and I don't mean to pick on Adamski, but it's just, it just, it maps very neatly that this film comes out in 1951 and then by 1953 he's writing flying saucers have landed and saying that he's met humanoid aliens who come in flying saucers and are concerned about our nuclear you know us doing damage with nuclear bombs and they have messages of peace for us and i mean this goes back before the film i mean he he literally was saying some of these same things and he was writing science fiction himself prior yep. <laughs> to prior to his his emergence as a contact d person so these ideas are older than that, but I, I, I don't know myself, were, were there any contactees who, you know, in quite the way that we would recognize now, um, who kind of tick all those boxes prior to, you know, 1951 or 1947? I don't, I, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I, not off the top. I mean, I don't know as much as I, you know, should of the contactee movement from, but off the top of my head, I don't, none, none's coming to mind. I think it is it is important that the 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 group of beings most most commonly reported within the contactees are called we call them the Nordics because they tend to be tall and blonde and pale, yeah. and very attractive. It's, 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 it's inevitably it's mentioned how attractive. Yep, yeah, <laughs> and I, I don't know how much. I mean, the if you know, Klaatu is a humanoid. He's not a Nordic as such. No, yeah. <laughs> You know, by I mean, we talked about this offline, but like by 1955, you've got films like the This Island Earth, where <laughs> the, the seemingly friendly, helpful, advanced alien race are far more Nordic-like. Yes, <laughs> blonde hair and their weird skulls. And I've only seen that film through the Mystery Science Theater version. <laughs> I, I've definitely seen the Mystery Science Theater. I'm trying to think if I've seen the actual. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I know it's controversial because, you know, it was held up as like a classic 50s, you know, science fiction movie. And it was seen as, you know, a bit unfair for mystery science theater to be doing it. But yeah, actually, I, I don't know if I've ever seen the original. But. No, I'm, man, again, like I, I can't emphasize enough how difficult it was to get a hold of stuff like this 
in <laughs> Ireland in the in the nineties, and that show came on late on some channel when we only had like two or three channels in those days, and it came on late at night, and it was like a bolt from some other planet. It was such a weird thing, and like all my friends stayed up just by chance, stayed up watching it because I was in school, and like we thought it was the funniest thing we ever seen. Like yeah, it's, we had like class. late nights with my friends watching it. <laughs> definitely very influential <laughs> yeah i mean you know this was be, we weren't aware that there was a, a cultural thing of you know watching bad films and it's just it's, it just feels like a long time ago yes um, i, I want to talk about uh Klaatu as a kind of like a this is very very obvious in the film i think the the allegory is fairly blunt but he, <laughs> he definitely uh, I, and again this fits into the contactee stuff where you know the beings that they meet are supposed to be like these almost spiritual figures that have come to uplift us, you know, there, there's a religion and sometimes they are flat out, they become religions, you know, uh, but he, he is a Christ-like figure. Yeah. I mean, his name is Carpenter, right Carpenter. There. <laughs> but well, it's just funny, like watching this, I was thinking like, okay, you know, like a visitor from the stars comes down with like a message of, you know, peace and friendship. He's killed by the military, then reborn then rises back up into the heavens and it's E.T. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is E.T. And you, you're talking about like the, the different strains of the way UFOs and aliens are portrayed in films. And there's sometimes they're hostile and sometimes they're they're here uh, as benefactors. In in 1982, famously, the, the John Carpenter's The Thing bombs at the box office. It's going up against E.T., you know, which is the quintessential friendly yeah. alien film. And people are so like they're all in on one interpretation of this but they're just not having anything or the other we want friendly aliens this summer <laughs> we don't want scary aliens because you know it's not like people don't like like scary and i remember when independence day was huge you know that was a or, and then in 1987 mm -hmm. the what was that film the the colin wilson book then life force oh yeah life force gets <laughs> trashed at the box office i think in 1987 by cocoon which is that's right know, friendly <laughs> aliens Sorry, folks, it was actually 1985. I let you down. I want to talk about the the scientist in the film, Professor Barnhart. This is interesting. Very Einstein-like. Yes, one question at the end. There's a bit of a bit of a smell of paperclip off him. <laughs> you know, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's implied. He doesn't sound German, does he? But his name is German. And Klaatu says to the kid, Klaatu makes friends with this family he's staying with and, and they have a little kid. And he says who, something like, who, who's the most important person or who's the smartest person in America? And the kid, yeah. he says, oh, Professor Bernhardt. And I thought, <laughs> whoa, they really had a lot of respect for science. At yeah. This point. <laughs> well, I mean, like Einstein was kind of, like, Einstein and Von Braun were both like big, you know, they were these kind of like public intellectual uh, like figureheads at the time. Uh, uh, and yeah, it's just funny, you know, he goes to, you know, they go to see, you know, the Lincoln Memorial, you know, they read the Gettysburg Address, and they're like, wow, this must have been the greatest guy who ever lived, you know, <laughs> who's his equivalent now, and it's just, yes. it's just funny to think, like, yeah, the modern day equivalent of, you know, Abraham Lincoln, Von Braun. <laughs> but there's this, there's this thing underlying in the film where the politicians, like, the film has no faith in politicians. But it mm -hmm. does in scientists. It's like yes, when when the politicians get together, they can't get over their petty differences, you know. But when the bunch of scientists get together, oh, then you can make progress. That really struck like 
this again, this is one of the things where you know, watching this as a kid, this never would have occurred to me. But you know, there's such a reverence for you know science, you know, technocracy. You, know, you can see how like you know this might be an echo of Klaatu society, where like, oh yeah, society that's like only like respectful of the STEM fields. Of course, they decide, yeah, let's put robots in charge of society and they'll let them you know kill anyone who did. So you can kind of see uh, that that really struck me, and you know, just like, okay, that that's the kind of you no. Know, society that he would respect it's obviously the reign of science that created his own uh, <laughs> uh robot of, overlord i think it's the kind of society that dr Kangan from thing from another world might uh, be a yes. favorite <laughs> well it is funny to compare the scientists in both uh it has to uh, the opposite films. but in in a film like all of this right this kind of i mean i think the 50s in america you've got this idea that you know engineering and science have helped to stop end the war defeat the Nazis, save the world, you know, and, you know, jet planes and bombs and these technological advancements have done the job for and the boffins. And, you know, in, in England, in Britain, they have the boffins, you know, yeah. cracking the codes and all these, there's this reverence for the, the figure of the scientist or the engineer, which I, I think we, we don't have at the moment, you know, with this kind of, we have a deep distrust of any sort of elite at the moment. Um, which is hilarious if you're actually a scientist and you know how much money they don't make <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or how not connected they are to power. But um, that's that's the perception. The In, in a film which still is predominantly about the, the horror of nuclear power, nuclear bombs, you know? Mm -hmm. This film is so pro-science and yet it doesn't, it, you know, it is, it's very involved with the horrors of war. There's a graveyard scene. Um, and the, the whole plot is about you guys have nuclear bombs now, you know, we, we can't afford to ignore you anymore and, and we have to make sure that you grow up so you can use this new tool safely. So it's, it's almost like it's saying scientists aren't, aren't the problem, but the, you know, the, the bomb isn't the scientific problem, it's a, it's a military problem or a pol yeah. political problem. I, don't know. I mean, it's almost the exact, yeah, again, like, I think that's like the exact opposite message that the thing from another world has also. It's just, it's very funny to <laughs> see that they really are. It's like that kind of mirror image of, you know, science versus politics slash the military and just uh, how that gets depicted, uh, which makes sense. I mean, again, I don't know a lot about uh, what was Harry Bates's political, I mean, you can make some assumptions, but I mean, I know John Campbell, who wrote, you know, the basis for uh, the thing from another world is very conservative. So it makes some sense that that strain would come through uh, in his movie adaptation. Anything else about uh, Day of the Earth Does Still before we move on? We haven't covered. Uh, let me see. Uh, yeah, as a Connecticut person, I was very happy that uh, you know, they showed the brief uh, New Haven train line appearance. So we got a uh, uh, Connecticut, you know, that showed up there a bit, uh, and uh, you have the Claw uh, Two making sure to let us know that you know resurrection is you know preserved for the Almighty. Yes. That uh, that's and it, it actually it made me think. You no, know, when they resurrect him, and you know, I forget the name of the woman. She goes, "How long are you alive for?" And you go, who can tell? And just made me think of the end of uh, Blade Runner when just like <laughs> just, And actually, you know, speaking of you know, this also comes out only a year after uh, Asimov's iRobot is published. And it's interesting that, you know, that's the book that kind of like really popularizes the notion of the robot, uh, even though the word comes from earlier. But, you know, this is really like the start of, you know, 
robot culture. And Asimov's own books, you know, the, the robot stories also, you know, are kind of dealing with like, you know, you have robots programmed to not allow humans to come to harm. And so what happens when robots kind of go out into society and have to deal with a human society? And he kind of comes to the same conclude, like a uh, spoiler warning for anyone who's, you know, reading Isaac Asimov's books, but you know, there's essentially like a robot who becomes president of the world. So he can kind of, you know, guide humanity on a more perfect path, you know, to fulfill his programming of not letting humans come to harm. So it is interesting to see that, you know, this idea of, you know, robots as saviors, you have these two big science fiction works uh, really echoing at the same time. What do you think of Gort as a science fiction icon? As a film icon? He's, he's a great design, you know, a great, you know, I mean, he, he isn't a science, an iconic science fiction figure. Uh, I mean, he's he's in an episode of The Simpsons when they have like uh, the X-Files episode of The Simpsons, uh, which also is they have Leonard Nimoy from In Search of there. But yeah, Gort makes his cameo appearance. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I will say, you know, speaking of Star Trek, you know, as a, you know, the Federation and Star Trek is, you know, the ideal, you know, humans and all other civilizations, you know, learn to grow up and peacefully coexist. And, you know, in the day the Earth stood still, it's, you know, the robots will kill you if you don't peacefully co. It, it struck me as a bit more sinister than you know, yeah. like the the utopian aspect as well. But you know, I think I think also that may have reflected kind of the view of the time. You know, you know, this is only a few years after Hiroshima, so I was thinking if you know the memory of the atomic bomb is still so prevalent that you no, know, there is that sense of you know, <laughs> the bomb is so terrifying. You know, we should have these terrifying robots to counteract it. I think he says the earth will be reduced to a burnt out cinder. <laughs> Such During... a power does exist. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, I have the whole speech here. It's brilliant. Um, maybe I'll foliate in. I don't know. <laughs> so... it, it's a great, I mean, the dialogue, you know, the, the script yeah. is great. I mean, it is really a, a, a moving, it, you know, there, it's funny, like, you know, there is that perception of, you know, like, you know, black and white movies are, you know, so boring, you know, as compared to modern block, but this, this moves along fast. I, you know, I think it really kept my, I mean, not that I needed to have my attention kept. I mean, it was really gripping to me watching this. And in a way that I think there are, there can be some pacing issues in older movies, but I mean, I think this one is very, uh, uh, it fits into the modern notion of, you know, how a movie's pacing should go. Yeah. It's very, it's, it feels fresh. Um, the, the, they feel the characters feel like real people um, and I, I'm kind of being a little bit snide about some of the <laughs> political stuff but it's it's not I don't it's not heavy-handed when you're watching it it feels natural it feels it is a thought it's a genuinely thoughtful film I think yes um, I agree yeah yeah so I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed this a lot Klaatu is afraid of what Gort is going to do to you know the earth if he gets killed he's a but also they're afraid of what humans are going to do to them you know it's uh, the whole point of this is that humans are a threat to the aliens and that's i think something we don't always see uh, <laughs> I, w I will say the one other funny thing that really came to mind is there's a scene when the doctors are talking about claw too and they're like wow he's in his 70s they say his life expectancy is 130 oh, yeah. how could that even be possible as they both you know light up cigarettes yes. and start <laughs> yeah that's amazing yeah. and that that's um... I mean that is un unintentional, right? I mean that that has, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> a moment of yeah, smoking is grand. <laughs> Two doctors like 
you've got me thinking about Star Trek First Contact now. And the mm. so because you, you have a similar situation, you have this, you know, um, this more backwards society being inducted for the first time into this federation of more enlightened beings. And um, in both cases, we are the <laughs> we are the unenlightened ones. <laughs> um, and just thinking about that scene at the end where the the Vulcans land, and but they don't we don't we don't really get any dialogue. It kind of cuts away before, um, you know, there's no real politics there. We don't learn like do hum does humanity have to change or better itself to be let into this club? We don't. Is it, no, yeah, it's there's there's the vague, you know, you can if you if you want to be generous and interpret, you know, there's the fact that you know the warp drive ship is made out of an old nuclear missile, mm. and so they're kind, or you know, you have like the Borg coming from the future. It's you know like everyone's going to be assimilated into a single, uh, you know, collective, and that's how we'll have peace. Versus you know the Vulcans landing is you know like all right, we'll we'll build a community together. So, you know, you can read maybe some of that, but there's also a bit of a libertarian streak there where it's, you know, these like, these like, I don't know, my, some, some like drunks living in the middle of, you know, a post-apocalyptic, you know, nuclear wasteland just decide to build a, you know, a warp drive out of nothing. And those Cochrane saying also, you know, like, I built the warp drive for money. And I was just thinking, this is post-World War Three. Like you're living in like this, like, dystopian you know mining who who you who's gonna pay you for this what's the <laughs> yeah again i wonder i wonder if uh, dr carrington from the thing would, would be yeah. a fan of the borg you might yeah <laughs> I, I do like i do like first contact but that that you've got me yes. differently about it now i mean everyone <laughs> always says star trek is a utopia i i read that biography of um uh, it's kind of oh uh gene roddenberry, roddenberry yeah that's there, there's a real muckraking biography of him uh, out there. And I was astonished by. It. I don't know. It's hard to know, but he seems to have interviewed everybody. So yeah, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll say also like uh, when you know by coincidence before we recorded this, I read a uh, by Alec Navala Lee a book called Astounding. John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction. So it covers a lot of the people involved with astounding science fiction at that time, but really looking at it through those four figures and kind of kind of like the takeaway is like, don't meet your hero. Like Asimov comes out a bit better than the other three, but it's just you know, like, these are all kind of unpleasant people. I mean, uh, Heinlein, Campbell and uh, uh, Hubbard, definitely unpleasant. Asimov to a lesser extent, but yeah, it is just like, <laughs> just these are people, you know, like so much, yeah, it's. Uh, I think Roddenberry probably fits in that spectrum. I, also, <laughs> I still deeply regret researching the the later political sayings of Ray Bradbury, especially. Yeah, especially if you know his early, like he wrote some work which was really quite forward thinking about different groups of people in the U.S. in the fifties. And yeah, what I grew up reading, and I presumed he was he was that kind of guy, but he really became not that. Anyway, uh, I yeah. think <laughs> mention of astounding brings us forward to our second. Our second film, uh, Thing from Another World, also 1951. Um, let's see now, just on the Wikipedia page, directed by Christian Nyby, produced by Edward Lasker for Howard Hawks, Winchester Pictures. He's probably the most famous name uh, behind the camera, I would say. Yes, yeah. And let's do it. The film's storyline concerns a US Air Force crew and scientists who find frozen in the Arctic ice a crashed flying saucer and humanoid body nearby. Returning to their remote research outpost with a body still in a block of ice, they are forced to defend themselves against the still 
alive and malevolent plant-based alien when it is accidentally defrosted. And unlike the uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still, this one is probably better known for its remake. But... Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, I'll say I've never seen the remake of Day of the Earth Stood Still and still no desire to <laughs> watch that. <all. laughs> so what were, your, what were your thoughts on rewatching Things from Another World? It's, I mean, it's, it's not a bad movie. Like it's a different, I, I will say, I know at least one person who prefers this to the John Carpenter version. Uh, like I will say like at the time when the uh, thing from another world came out, a lot of the science fiction crowd really didn't like it. Like I know Isaac Asimov thought this was the worst movie ever made when he saw it. It's not, I don't think it's a bad movie, but it's definitely, it's, kind of simultaneously more of its time and also a much more American movie, I think, in its themes. Uh, we'll, we'll say that. There's <laughs> something just a bit more workmanlike about it, like all of the sets are adequate, but not interesting. Uh, the cinematography is functional, but not striking. You, you know, it, just, yeah. it looks like they're on a set. Not a bad set, it, yeah. but <laughs> a set. And the, the creature itself is like this. I think a lot of the writing in this is is interesting, if not good. And then the creature itself is kind of a non, not very memorable centerpiece. He's not, yeah, one of, not one of the great science fiction creations visually. The, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think like the idea of like turning the so for people who may not have read who goes there, the original story is much closer to the John Carpenter. Uh, uh, remake with you know like the 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 thing uh, you know taking over people's bodies and having the ability to you know shape shift and stuff and in the thing from another world it looks very Frankensteinish mm. we'll say uh, and yeah. yeah it's 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 not I mean I think one of the conceits of the movie is that it's actually like a vegetable being not a and I think there's something interesting about you know having a intelligent carnivorous uh, vegetable but having it look like Frankenstein is not, yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking like, uh, I guess it's about 10 years before uh, the day of the Triffids, uh, the movie version came out. And even then uh, it's, there's some limitations in how you can depict uh, intelligent carnivorous alien plants there. <laughs> so I read who goes there once on a plane years ago. Um, and I don't remember too much about it. Tell us a little bit about John Campbell and the, 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 the world that he was writing in and the sort of pulp, Pulp Fiction universe that this story came from. And this is in the 1930s, right? This is before flying saucers are even a thing. Yes, he publishes uh, Who Goes There in 1938. Uh, and notably also in the story, uh, the spaceship is described as looking like a submarine. So the fact it's a flying saucer, it's specifically changed to uh, you know, reflect flying saucers that have emerged then. But yeah, John W. Campbell, uh, he's most famous as the He's the third and probably the most significant editor of uh, Astounding Science Fiction, this big pulp magazine. Uh, he becomes the editor in 1937 uh, and keeps that position until his death in 1971. Uh, and he, you know, this is, he's kind of the magazine uh, emerges uh, uh, like really under his editorship. Uh, in that uh, uh, biography of Astounding I mentioned, they point out that you know, prior to Campbell taking over for astounding pretty much the only notable things that you know certainly the only things still remembered in that magazine are actually the two hp lovecraft stories uh that got published uh shadow out of time and at the mountains of madness and at the mountains of madness i mean i think everyone kind of agrees was 
a big influence on who goes there, uh, even though John Campbell did not like Lovecraft or his writing style. But, uh, but yeah, so Campbell is a long-term editor. It's really in his time, and there's a lot of uh, uh, influential science fiction authors being published in the Stounding, uh, and he's part of this you know, burgeoning community at the time. You know, he's very close with Isaac Asimov, very close with Robert Heinlein. Uh, 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 Dianetics gets its you know, really heavy promotion through Astounding uh, you know, with L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, and, uh, you know, Campbell's promotion of Dianetics kind of burned a lot of his bridges with his friends later in life. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, and one of many things that ends up you know, kind of burning uh, his bridges. But you know, he, and it should be pointed out, he's a very conservative uh, uh, figure as well. Uh, you know, I think uh, the biography mentioned, you know, he said, he mentioned uh, Franklin Roosevelt positively to his father once and his father just like browbeat him so badly, he just became like an ultra conservative for the rest of his life, uh, which also is, you know, interesting that Isaac Asimov has got his start as a very left wing uh, uh, figure uh, in uh, the Brooklyn science fiction scene, uh, uh, which again is interesting that the Brooklyn science fiction scene basically started off as a young communist gathering and kind of emerged into science fiction from that. John Campbell is, you know, uh, very uh, you know, conservative from the start. And then you have uh, uh, in uh, the uh, Los Angeles area science fiction scene under Heinlein. Heinlein begins as a very left-wing figure. And again, his circle of science fiction, you know, uh, companions begins as part of his, you know, political program. And then he ends up, you know, famously becoming much more conservative uh, uh, at the end of his, you know, throughout or early on in his life and kind of continuing that trend throughout uh, until the end to, to the degree that, you know, near the end of his life, he actually uh, destroys his friendship uh, with Arthur C. Clarke by, you know, saying that, you know, as a British guy, Clarke doesn't have the right to criticize the United States. And that just completely torches uh, uh, his friendship with a lot of people in the last few years of his life. But, but so we have kind of these three main figures and, uh, uh, with different political trajectories, but all of them are kind of woven into a, a astounding science fiction during the period of Campbell's editorship. And then in the film, like, are there any, what do we know about some of the people behind the camera? Like so if you mentioned, uh, you know, the director, uh, Howard Hawks, you know, this is the big debate, you know, to what degree did he actually direct? And it's, I mean, I think essentially it's kind of, I mean, he had a huge, whether or not he formally direct, he had a big hand in it overall. And again, I think he's kind of the biggest uh, name. Uh, the screenplay uh, had uh, uncredited work by Hawks and uh, Ben Hecht. Uh, and Hecht did a lot of uncredited script work, you know, throughout the 20s. And like, he actually got his start doing a lot of like, uh, like vaudeville comedy stuff. Uh, and for, he also did uh, the original A Star is Born, Gunga Din, Mutiny on the Bounty, Cleopatra, the 67 Casino Royale. So these are kind of the big, you know, people, big, the biggest names behind there. Uh, and Hawks himself is very a big influence on John Carpenter. Uh, I you know uh, the thing from another world is shown in the movie Halloween, uh, but also a, uh, particularly uh, Hawks' movie Rio Bravo is a real big influence on uh, John Carpenter. And uh, Carpenter's kind of like first real movie, uh, Assault in Precinct 13, is this kind of unofficial remake of Rio Bravo. Uh, and 
actually as a way to point this, or kind of connect it as well, one of Hawks's longtime collaborators, uh, including on Rio Bravo, but not on Thing from Another World, was the script writer Lee Brackett. Uh, who is also a major science fiction author in her own right. Uh, she's part of Robert Heinlein's Los Angeles scene. Uh, her husband, Edmund Hamilton, uh, kind of wrote one of the very first space opera series uh, in the 20s and 30s. And she's probably most famous for the fact that her last script before her death was the first draft of Empire Strikes Back. So yes, uh, yes. she has, so he has this connection, we know, of a prominent uh, pulp science fiction author uh, and screenwriter in her own right. So where do we go with this? Think from another world. Um, so I, I, most people will know the basic rundown from the John Carpenter version if they haven't seen the original. But yeah, um, heavy dose of mysterious polar kind of stuff. Like there's a wonderful, exp that, like just when they're flying there at the beginning of the film, they're, they're, you've got military characters and scientific characters and they're both characterized very differently from Day of the Earth Stood Still. And um, there's a scientific conference going on at this research station in the North Pole. And these military folks are sent up because something unusual has happened. And when they're on the plane, there's this emphasis on the pole as being a mysterious place, which I found very interesting. You know, I'm yeah. episodes about just how the idea of the pole as being a mysterious place has been filtered through gothic fiction, you know, horror, science fiction, uh, Lovecraft. And, and it's just interesting to see it, that see that note hit so deliberately here. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was kind of a, you know, when they're trying to like, you know, you can see like they're cold in the plane, they're cramped, you know, oh, you know, wake up for the coffee, you know, that's, uh, that's I, I thought the the flight, the flying aspects are pretty well, you know, like trying to navigate, uh, you know, when you're just in the middle of this vast white nothingness. I, I thought those scenes were, uh, pretty well also and you gotta point out there's also a uh uh kind of like a i guess a stand-in for the audience uh a reporter character scotty and he's kind of you know in between you know the uh, military and the scientific uh uh people he, uh, he's like kind of like the commenter i have to say i really did not like that character he kind of came off as like a like a proto like joss sweden type just he's making sarcastic comments just constantly non-stop and you know they're like they're like you know they're radioing the base for help because they're you know you know the thing is killing all of them and he's just, do i get permission to tell my story you know with the just like yeah he was a bit annoying but i i do appreciate you know at the climax of you know the big thing he just faints completely and he's just you know he, he's not heroic he's not just you know, a guy who just faints but uh uh, yeah, and it was pointed out that kind of the two camps here, there's a uh, Captain Hendry, who's the military uh, guy, and Dr. Carrington, who's the head scientist, and, you know, characterized very differently, and I say, I think Dr. Carrington looked a little bit like the Roger Delgado master from the 1970s Doctor Who, so I don't know if that was an influence, but there, there's a little bit of a similarity there, I felt. <laughs> Did you notice that uh, before they get to the base, somebody mentions Dr. Carrington and the only bit of background we get as to like his, his research or his research interest is that he was at Bikini. So yeah, this yep. film doesn't have a lot, it doesn't have a, a like a, a heavy nuclear under undertone like uh, Day of the Earth Still does, but it's almost as if, why, why did they put that in the script? Why did they mention that? It's almost to make him more sinister. So in this film, science is suspect and the, yep. the nuclear bomb is a symptom of that so yep you know bad things in this film come <laughs> from 
the scientific way of thinking, not the military. And there's a the way also that uh, uh, you know the thing itself is radioactive, so they track him with the Geiger counter, mm. which actually thought was uh, it was almost reminding me a bit like aliens. There's a scene when they're in the hall and like the reading is you know 0.5. 0.6, he's coming. And I thought that was a good uh, kind of a tension building thing. Uh, although also just funny, that they, don't, they don't seem that concerned about radiation. Like <laughs> there's like a, some giant radioactive thing coming towards me. I might be a bit more concerned, but I guess it is kind of early on. Uh, <laughs> Something that. that shows up again and again in UFO cases. Right? Yep, yeah, exactly. And Forest and many others. There's a- there's Betty a, and Barney Hill, yeah. Geiger counters from this point on are, are an important part of those stories. <laughs> so what what transpires is when the military get there that there has been uh, some kind of a, a ufo crash and um unlike in the better known john carpenter one if, if i'm interpreting this right the the, the object has crashed very recently it, it's not something that happened a, a, ages ago yeah so in both you know who goes there and the john carpenter remake the i think in who goes there the thing crashed uh, 20 million years ago and the John Carpenter one, I think they mentioned 100 million years. I can't remember, but certainly you know, there's an ancient alien aspect to that. And actually, the John Carpenter version, they mentioned Chariots of the Gods directly. But, but yeah, in this version, it's a very recent, uh, it crashes and they pick up the, uh, you know, like the sci or uh, the uh, magnetic readings. And I think, I think it's a seismograph readings or they get, or no, it's a, they have the camera that they can see the object, you know, trying to navigate uh, as it crashes. Uh, interestingly, so there's the uh, writer of Logan's Run, William F. Nolan, in the 1970s, he wrote in Unproduced, it's not a full script, but it's a story treatment for uh, another uh, uh, like version of uh, Who Goes There, which ultimately it has no connection to the John Carpenter remake. But in that version, they, they kind of combine the two. So the initial crash is you know, a more recent thing. But the ship that crashes, uh, the aliens on it are trying to get to a much larger, you know, ancient ship that's buried under Antarctica. So they kind of combine both the ancient alien and the you know, more sudden UFO crash type narratives. I, I was wondering what would have been out there already in the in the ether about UFO crashes at this point. And I mean, Roswell had happened shortly after the Kenneth Arnold thing in 47, but kind of blew over fairly quickly but i you, you have you know the frank scully thing you know the aztec hoax yeah yep <laughs> i think he was writing about that in 1950 saying that there'd been a, yep. a downship also in the in the desert states the southwest um so that would have been probably a, a better known story um and uh, just... uh maury island where it's not a crash but it's you know yes. a, a ufo that's you know having some kind of trouble and, you know, ejects the slag. And so there is some vague notion of, you know, flying saucers can kind of uh, uh, be at risk. Uh, Maybe this is a bit of a reach, but uh, I've written down uh, potential uh, vehicle interference because uh, as they're getting close to the base, they start having problems with the, the compass and with the radio yep. and again, <laughs> stuff that shows up in, in UFO cases all the time. Yeah, the, the, the magnetic interference. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and uh, we get, once again, we get theremin. So to, to, mm -hmm. as they get close to the to the saucer. And um, yeah, amazing just how early on this this link was, was, was created that we associate the spooky electronic sounds of the theremin with uh, otherworldly beings. <laughs> uh, so what, uh, so I, another thing I thought is that uh, 
uh, it's funny like, here they have you know, the officers you know you know i forget the exact context but like uh that you know president truman if assuming he can get off his ass or something like that and then you know, and then in the day the earth stood still there's you know one of those characters like oh the government they're not people they're democrats and so you have these <laughs> two anti-democrat sentiments in both of these movies <laughs> my i think the best bit of thing from another world is the scene where they go out onto the ice and they're figuring out what what has crashed and they all spread out and they make the shape of the flying saucer and they slowly realize what they've got and yeah <laughs> it, it's very i think that's very effective the, the theremin music is genuinely effective and, and kind of spooky here and i think the dialogue is really on point just for this scene and again like what what makes the hairs of my neck stand up is is realizing like this stuff is current like people are still mm. reporting these things they're trying to figure out what they are and um, it's brand new it's it's happening you know, in, in, as they write this, as they film this, and, you know, somebody says, you know, the dialogue is kind of, they kind of dance around what they've got, and they're saying, like, we, we finally got one. And then I think somebody actually uses the phrase flying saucer, and yeah, yeah. Um, a little bit later, somebody uses the phrase UFO as well, which was relatively, relatively recent. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's report, he's, uh, I think it's the, that's the scene when they're uh, reading like the official like no Air Force announcement that they're no longer going to be investigating yes. UFOs, which I, I forgot to look up. If that's a real. I mean, I assume that must have been a real uh, Air Force passage or something, but they, that would have been what Project Sign or like the yeah. the very early. So he, study. Gives a date. he says he dates. He starts reading this thing and he, from 1949. Yeah. yeah. And he says the Air Force has discontinued investigating flying saucers because there's no evidence. And he uses the phrase UFO. And I was thinking, well, in 1949, Project Sign had only, like, they'd only just really started doing it mm -hmm. for, for about a year, I suppose, at that point, if, if not less. So, I mean, they're making it sound like they're not investigating. But, I mean, at that point, they hadn't even, you know, you know the Air Force hadn't yeah. even announced, you know what, we, we there's nothing here. We're not even, <laughs> like, there. <laughs> so there, there's definitely a hint of, secrecy and conspiracy here because the moment they realize oh we've got a flying saucer the military guys who are supposed to be the, the good guys in this start saying we have to cover this up we can't tell anybody and they tell <laughs> the, the, the press guy that he can't he can't report yeah. it so how early on in the game are we getting you know a conspiracy angle on, on flying saucers well i mean i it, again like going back to maury island there's the whole thing there with you know like the air force investigators are you know killed on the way back and uh you know the strange figures you know showing up to uh, you know tell uh you know kenneth arnold not to get too involved and stuff like that so i guess there is kind of that bit you know early on as well uh, i'll say also yeah i the scene when they're on the ice forming the circle and you know realizing it's a flying i, I like that scene a lot too but also you know it's it's a flying saucer but there's a wing and a wing tip that's yes. poking up. And so that, again, it's kind of going back a bit to the Kenneth Arnold, uh, you know, like it's a wing shaped object as well. Uh, that scene also, you know, that the wing tip poking up through the ice that gets reused in the first Captain America movie also, uh, yeah. which also has some other like uh, 1940s uh, like yes. uh, films. Made me think of uh, Sphere, the Michael Crichton book. Yes. Yeah. The copy I had, or I probably still have it somewhere. It has, the front cover is is a painting of the fin sticking up out of the ocean floor. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's a fin shape. Yeah, I haven't read that. Craft I is very read that again. The yeah. only thing they can see coming up out of the ground is like the giant fin. <laughs> yeah, it just 
Yeah, interesting. I'm sure Crichton must have seen thing from another world. Like knowing him, I'm sure uh, he mm. made that connection. So I want to. So so they they take it. They find the craft, but they also find um, a creature who has tried to climb, crawl out of the craft, and froze solid in the ice, and they cut him out. And all of that bit happens the same as it does in the Carpenter one. And he comes alive, and he's this carrot, <laughs> he's a plant-based yeah. animal, which is genuinely an interesting. It's an interesting concept. It, it is a pity that the design of the creature isn't more interesting. Uh, and then from there, from there on, he, he's like a lot of movie monsters. He's he's very good at hiding, despite being large and clunky. Yeah. <laughs> they spend a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out where he is in the base, which presumably isn't huge. And yeah. <laughs> it kind of you get a lot of scenes where it's the military, it's uh, Captain Hendry versus Dr. Carrington. And Dr. Carrington, wow, like his characterization is <laughs> is really <laughs> blunt. They have him, they have him saying things like, you know, there are no enemies in science, you know, <laughs> and uh, knowledge is more important than life. And he's your your classic movie scientist who's ready to risk any anyone's life so that he can learn. And he's he's you're supposed to think he's foolish because he doesn't want to kill the thing. He wants to talk to it and reason with it and think of everything we can learn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, there's like maybe a hint of an accent to his voice too. So you know, he's not quite American. You know, he's maybe a bit suspicious uh, in that way also. Uh, uh, yeah, and I'll say uh, one of the big differences in both uh, who goes there and uh, thing from another world is that there are women on this base, and so we get, of course romantic subplot between is a miss nicholson and captain hendry uh, i kind of liked some of their like i thought their diet like it is having like a romance subplot in uh you know this movie is a bit strange but i, I kind of liked it and i like that she was not really a you know a damsel in distress you know there's it's funny because dvd version i have it shows her you know like screaming on the cover but she never screams you know she's never you know needs rescuing you know she stays pretty level-headed uh and i did think it was funny you know, like the famous uh uh blood testing scene from uh both who goes there and the thing uh when they're all tied you know that gets turned into kind of like the playful you know tying him up so that uh <laughs> she can uh you know give him whiskey or coffee or whatever and just that that was a funny adaptation of that <laughs> somewhere in here amongst the books i have a copy of um h.g wells first men of the moon and um, there's an interest, I can't remember who wrote this, but there's an interesting foreword where they talk about how they think, right, so H.G. Wells, uh, Dr. Carrington is, is your classic movie evil scientist, basically. And that, that's an archetype that goes way back. And this foreword talks about Wells' use of like evil mad scientists. And he says like, so, you know, he's got the obvious evil mad scientist, he's got Dr. Moreau and um you know you've got your dr frankenstein's before that and stuff but they they reckon that professor caver who's the the mm -hmm. main guy in in from he's the guy who develops the the space travel in from the earth or first man of the moon um, and they talk about how he, he's a much more subtle indictment of the scientist figure because he's not he's not overtly evil like dr moreau he's not but he's he's careless and bumbling and he only cares, like Dr. Carrington, he only cares about the knowledge and the science. And he doesn't really care who gets hurt. And he's kind of, he's kind of like silly and fuddy-duddy and absent-minded about it. There's a bit where when he first perfects Caverite, the material that allows him to travel in space, he accidentally blows up his laboratory and he, or his house. Yeah. And he says something like, oh, you know, I think the other guy, Bedford, says, you know, didn't you have some servants? And he's like, oh, well, maybe one or two, but, you know, 
you know, they'd have been happy to give their life for, <laughs> for <Yeah>. science. <laughs> so the, I can't remember who wrote this forward, but they kind of said like, he's a more, a more subtle indictment than yeah. Dr. Moreau. I've read, I've either read that I've read something similar. Yeah. Talking about uh, Bedford as, or uh, uh, Cavour as the uh, kind of absent. I, I think in an earlier version of this, uh, like manuscript for first men, I think he is even a bit more sinister, like initially also. And, and again, you know, in first men, the moon, he's at the end, you know, he wants to stay behind, you know, talk with the Selenites and learn all about their culture. Yes. And, you know, it turns out that they're going to, you know, yeah. invade the earth. So it's, you know, it's kind he of, again, like kind of a fool. The earth at risk because he's so, yeah. <laughs> so stupid. He doesn't realize that he's telling them all this stuff and they're going to use it. He's yep. Like, <laughs> um, Oh, I have something to say about it. Yeah, so one of the subplots is that Dr. Carrington like takes bits of the thing and starts growing them like these little pods and feeding them. Like this is so sinister, but he's feeding them human blood that they have on the base for medical reasons. And it, I, I quite like that. See, like as a science fiction, you know, trope, it's an interesting one. And I visually it looks good. And he's got these creepy little plant pods that are breathing. And mm -hmm. there's all these, all these uh, bags of blood flowing down into them and obviously the everybody else is horrified and he's just like <laughs> oh you know we have we have to do this and they realize like this is how the thing is going to grow an army and take over the world mm -hmm. and and this is like one of the first alien invasion movies really if you think about it that yeah. way even though the thing never does get to replicate you know it intends to and it, i mean i suppose the, the comparison to communism is inevitable because he Dr. Carrington admires this creature because, oh, it has no, what does he say? It has no emotions and it has no weaknesses. And, you know, it, it just does what it needs to do and it multiplies and, you know, which is how people would have, Americans would have thought about communism at this time, I suppose. It's, uh, you know, it's like Ash's speech in Alien at the end when he's talking about, uh, you know, the alien as the perfect killing machine there. Uh, and of course, you know, he's a, the, the thing here it's always referred to as the man from mars they constantly say, and you know mars is the red planet so it's it's right there so nice nice but, and you can see also like the plants that he's growing dr k i mean it looks kind of like the pods from you know invasion of the body snatchers which only a couple of years after this I, again i wonder if that was kind of a little visual nod also uh, so there's this kind of ongoing thing about invasion of the body snatchers where everybody interprets it as a parable about communism and then the people who made the film in every interview you can find, they tend to say, what, we were just making a silly science fiction monster <laughs> film. We were, you know, and I, I think that's probably true to a degree because, you know, space and flying saucers and space monsters were were in, in the in the ethos and that was, or in, in the culture. And that's what was, you didn't necessarily need, uh, you know, you didn't need an underlying secret motivation to make these, to tell these stories in Hollywood. You were just trying to tell a fun story. Um, but I think there's no question about thing from another world. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's very, it's even more blunt than that. There's no, because you can watch Body Snatchers and think about it from the other point of view as well. Like you can see it as an anti-McCarthyist thing if you want to. I think it's mm -hmm. open enough in the way that like good art can be to, that you can yes. take it that way if you want yeah. to. I think it is possible that, you know, you can have a, uh, uh, you know, them thinking they're making something, you know, completely apolitical, but, you know, if it's just, reflecting something that's such in the zeitgeist i mean if you're making a film that really has its button you know or has its finger on the pulse of the era and the era is just so saturated with anti-communism again you know it's you can think you're making something it's you know, just a movie but it's you know <laughs> if you're making it you know 
in an era where there's any kind of dominant ideology, it's going to reflect that. I know the feeling of like doing something creative and then coming back to it years later and like, oh, I see what I yeah. was thinking, <laughs> but I didn't at the time. Yep. <laughs> and have you other, other uh, points to make about thing from another world? Well, I think also like speaking of uh, invasion of the body snatch, you know, that movie ends with, you know, the warning, you know, like that was like, yes. they're coming they're, and then this ends with the thing, you know, keep watching the skies. That's the famous, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, it's a fair, you know, got to watch the skies to make sure that, you know, the Russians aren't coming either, but I will. So something fun that I think uh, is there is that, uh, you know, keep watching the skies. That's the, uh, you know, the, the last line of a uh, thing from another world. And, in 1956, there's an organization, kind of a movement launch called Operation Moonwatch, which is about, uh, you know, it's developed so that American, you know, uh, amateur astronomers can, uh, you know, try and track satellites since they're assuming satellites are soon going to be watched. And there's a famous, or not, it's not famous, but there's a history of Operation Moonwatch that came out about 10 or 15 years ago. It's called Keep Watching the Skies. Uh, and so you have that kind of connection between, you know, the history of, you know, amateur astronomy and watching satellites and the influence of thing from another world. Uh, and to tie this all together, one of the astronomers who's very involved in the development of Operation Moonwatch is J. Allen Hynek. So yes. we get that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. So do we want to make a final assessment of the two films? Like, are they worth watching? And for who to, you know, for whom are they worth watching? Definitely. I mean, you know, I, I assume the, the type of person who's listening to this <laughs> podcast, it's definitely worth watching. I mean, I think as pure cinema, Day the Earth Stood Still is probably more important uh, or probably more, uh, I mean, I guess probably more important overall, I would say as relevance. But I mean, so it's, there's, there's work. You now, these are short movies. I think they're both under 90 minutes long. So, you know, it's, you can watch, but I mean, like every movie today has to be like three hours. So just, just take an afternoon. You can watch both, and you know, it's you won't, you won't regret it. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. I think Day of the Earth Still is an all-time classic, and I think almost anybody will enjoy it. You know, yes, unless, you, unless you have a real bias against old black and white films, some people do. I think almost anybody will enjoy. I think Thing from Another World, if you're into flying saucer stuff. If you're into, if you're already into fifties sci-fi, I think you'll you'll enjoy it. It's it's not a bad film at all. Do you have any other favorites that I just just to throw out there? Like if since we're on the topic, I'll say so. Nineteen fifty-one. We have uh, Day the Earth Stood Still. We have a uh, uh, thing from another world. Also that year, When Worlds Collide. Again, I movie I definitely recommend. The year before, 1950, there's uh, Destination Moon by Robert Heinlein. So again, we see that kind of astounding influence. Uh, and I mentioned uh, again before, uh, even as a kid, I really enjoyed uh, the 1950, I think it's 1953 uh, War of the Worlds and the 1954 uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Rip both of those favorites of mine. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that, that War of the Worlds is a huge favorite of mine. And I... I... I just love how they update and the, the the tripods and they use the they're pretty much flying saucers. You yeah, know, they're they're and they're they were a pretty unique take on them, and but they're current and they were current then and now they're like incredibly fifties. But yeah, <laughs> I, there's this this thing there's this problem with that film where when you get modern prints of it you can see the strings very clearly 
and there's like i've gone into the forums on this and there's people saying swearing blind that like in the 50s and 60s you couldn't see the you couldn't see the strings <laughs> and i saw this film as a kid on tv and i don't remember i remember being impressed by the special effects you know i knew they were old-fashioned but um i remember thinking they looked pretty good so uh, there's there's debate about like will there be a version <laughs> released where they they change that so it's something to do with the 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 resolution that allows you to see them in a way that you couldn't previously apparently yeah huh. I, I haven't again i haven't seen that movie in a long time but I, I, i'd love a chance to go back and watch it so i might have to do that and where can people find your work and why i know you have some interesting projects coming up soon so maybe we'll talk about yes that. uh so as always, I'm on Twitter. I think my what Edward underscore underscore Guimont on Twitter. I think search for my name, you'll find me on Twitter. Website still in development. Uh, at some point, someday that will eventually go up. Uh, and also, uh, I'm the co-host of the podcast, The Impossible Archive, with a uh, my uh, fellow historian Bill Black. And we've also been on a bit of a hiatus, but we have. A couple new episodes in the pipeline that'll be coming out maybe by the time this episode is uh and we have some plans moving forward as well for uh some guests so uh our our podcast also is coming out of hibernation now that spring is here <laughs> and i mentioned as well your spot on the workers cauldron podcast was was very enlightening I learned yes that. i was very happy to be a part of that, you know, another great podcast I enjoy listening to. They're, they're good folks. And um, that was the episode about the, I'm not, I can't remember what they called it, but it's about the Soviet Sasquatch book. Yes. Yeah. It's an, uh, was it Porsche, Porsche, Yeah. It's I'm yeah. looking at it now. It's in front of me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah I'll, I'll put that in, in the, in the notes as well. Uh, tremendous. Thank you so much. That was loads of fun. Thank you. And yeah, glad to be back on. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. You know the score. You can reach out and get in touch if you fancy over on Twitter, where I am at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. Getting used to saying that one. And if you want to help out the show, what can you do? You can head on over to buy me a coffee forward slash white Atlantic. And uh, I'll let you know most of that, most of that, most of those donations don't go towards coffee. They go towards buying more books so I can find out more weird stuff to talk about. So as always, until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening and keep watching the skies, obviously. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by 